0: we're in the book of amos this morning and with all due respect i y'all are a very biblically literate congregation i appreciate you but i would not put money on the fact that most of you know where amos is in the bible let me just say that because most christians i think would say yeah i think there's probably a book called amos let me let me check my table of contents and that's okay god loves you just as much but i bet i bet you've rarely if ever read out of this book you've rarely if ever heard a sermon out of this book this is, this is the part of the Bible that is known as the minor prophets, although just I'm telling you, when I first meet Amos when I get to heaven, I'm not going to call him a minor prophet to his face. I mean, even in heaven, he'll probably put my eyes out, right, uh, punch my lights out, but uh, we call them the minor prophets. I don't know if you know this, but the Old Testament is structured in such a way that the historical books of the Old Testament are at the beginning, you know Genesis through Second Chronicles. And then you've got your, your uh, books of wisdom literature from Job all the way to Song of Solomon. And then, after that, you've got your prophetic books. And then the major prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel. They're called major because they're long books. They're 40, 50 chapters. And then you get the minor prophets, called that because they're shorter. That's where you get your Amos and your Hosea and your Joel and your Malachi and all those other guys. Just because they're called minor doesn't mean they're less important. In fact, I would say to you the words of Amos, particularly Amos, are very relevant to us today just as relevant today as they were 2,800 years ago when this farmer and fig picker and shepherd wandered up from the south up into the the cosmopolitan capital city of northern Israel and walked those streets and rained down hellfire and brimstone on the heads of those overprivileged and self-indulgent people. And he would say a lot of the same things to us today. We've been talking about what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Remember, Jesus said there are two commands that matter more than any other. If you want to live a life that pleases God, that represents him well, if you want to experience the abundant life that God called for, we're born again to a new life. If we don't want to go back to our old ways, but instead walk the path that Jesus died to give us, we're going to focus on loving God and loving our neighbors. And that's not easy. In fact, a lot of us just sort of throw up our hands and say, I can't do that. But you can. Holy Spirit is in you, and God can make you the kind of person who loves others uh, consistently and, and effectively, but there are, th- there are steps you need to take to become that kind of person. Last week, we looked at one of them, and that is dying to yourself, literally examining the part of you that is focused on self-centeredness and getting what I want out of life and just putting that to death over time. Today, we're going to look at another aspect of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. We start with chapter 5 of Amos, verse 4. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba for Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel should come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. So in this beginning, uh, the, the, the first verses we're looking at, he mentions three cities that you're probably not familiar with. You probably don't know Old Testament Israel geography. I know I don't. You have to look at a map to kind of get it. And even then, it's hard to relate. So here's the, way I, here's the way I would put it to help us all understand as Texans. You know where Tyler is, right? North of where we live now. So imagine you live in Tyler, Texas, 200 years ago. And there's one place on earth where you can worship God. One place on earth where the temple of God sits, because in Old Testament times, there was literally only one place to worship the Lord, and that was the temple in Jerusalem. Imagine the temple of God is in Houston. You live in Tyler. So maybe, maybe you get to Houston once or twice a year because it's hard to get there by foot, by animal, by a wagon. And then you hear that there are these other temples that are in Marshall, that are in Longview. There's even a little shrine in Arp. Anybody know where Arp is? Yeah, and, and just imagine you say to yourself, well, why am I going all the way to Houston? I'll just go to one of these closer ones. And after all, the gods that they worship in these closer shrines, they're not as demanding as the God of Israel. Don't, don't worry, I still believe in the God of Israel. He's still, he rescued our people from slavery and, and all that good stuff. He's the God of David, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But hey, I'm gonna worship these gods who are closer, who are a little less demanding And that's what was going on in Israel at that time. Their hearts had been led astray by these false gods. They worshiped these other gods alongside the God of Israel, which you must not do. And when Amos says that a fire is coming, he means something serious is on the way, and it happened. Like with so many of the prophecies of the Old Testament, we can draw a direct line to something that happened in history that fulfilled it. And in this case, 18 years after Amos wandered the streets of Samaria, Samaria, That land was invaded by the Assyrian army in the north. The Assyrians took over the northern kingdom of Israel, and just like that, boom, 10 tribes of Israel were gone to history, either killed or carried off into exile, where they basically melted into the people groups there. And you know, if you've read the Bible at all or you grew up going to Sunday school, that the prophets of the Old Testament constantly preach about idol worship constantly telling the people of God, put away your idols and and stop bowing down to these false gods. It starts with Moses as he smashes those tablets of the Ten Commandments when he sees his people worshiping a golden calf. And it goes all the way through Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets, all through the Old Testament. This is one of the main themes of Scripture. And yet it's something we rarely talk about. And I think there's two reasons for that. Number one, We don't think idolatry is relevant to our lives. None of us has ever gone into a pagan temple to, to worship there. None of us has ever bowed down before a statue. None of us has ever engaged in child sacrifice or ritual prostitution or any of the other awful things that the pagans did in those days. And so we say, well, this is something that was a problem back then, but not so much today. And I profoundly disagree. In fact, I would say that idolatry is at least as big a problem in American Christianity today as it was in Judaism in the day of Amos. In fact, I would say that if you want to cast around for, for answers to why the American church today is losing continually and has been and will continue to lose impact on our culture, status, influence you can, you can throw in a lot of factors, but I think the number one is that we have other gods that have taken the place of God in our hearts. Other gods that have taken the place that only Jesus commands. And, and, and in order for you to understand what I mean, idol worship doesn't have to mean bowing down to a statue or worshiping something that is recognized as a god. Idol worship means whenever you give your allegiance to something other than Jesus Christ. It means when something other than him is your hope for the future, if only I can have this, or if only this can hold out for me, if that is true of you, then you're worshiping an idol. Anything that makes you angry when someone talks to you about it and, 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 and I guess, threatens your idol, or anything that makes you afraid that you might lose it. Anything you think you couldn't live without, that is your true God. And the truth is, you can be a church-going, Bible-quoting, tithe-offering Christian who does his or her best to follow the commands of Scripture and still be an idol worshiper and still have something else on the throne of your heart that only Jesus deserves. And it can be something as, as, as ordinary and as beneficial as your job your love of your country, your possessions, your hobbies, your sense of the approval of others and the desire to make others around you happy, even your family, even something as good and as beautiful as your own family can become an idol in your heart if that is the most important thing to you, if that takes the place that only Jesus commands. So, Not only do I disagree that idolatry is not relevant to our lives, I think it is one of the most important and relevant topics we can talk about. The second reason I think we don't talk about it often enough is we don't really understand why God makes such a big deal about idol worship. After all, why should God care that I'm passionate about my job or that I want my kids to succeed or that I care what other people think of me? Why should God care that I want to live a certain lifestyle? I mean, I'm going to church. I'm obeying the commands. Is he like a teenage boy who gets upset because he sees his girlfriend talking to the quarterback during the the break between algebra and chemistry? Is that the way God is? After all, it says in the Old Testament over and over again, I am a jealous God. We need to understand that God's jealousy is not like our jealousy. Our jealousy is always born out of insecurity. God's jealousy comes from a place of absolute love. God doesn't hate our idol worship because it makes him feel bad. God hates our idol worship because he loves us and he knows what it does to us. And this is where I want to spend the rest of my time. You see, we think of idolatry and we think, okay, so we're supposed to love the Lord our God and love our neighbor as ourselves. So idol worship gets in the way of us loving the Lord, right? Yeah, it does. But I want to show you how idol worship gets in the way of us loving our neighbor. God sees what it does to us. Look at verse 10 of chapter 5 of Amos. They hate him who reproves in the gate. Now, let me just show you what's happening here. Amos is identifying problems in the culture of Israel at this time. The Israelites, by the way, were super wealthy. They, they were, on, they were in, in the midst of an economic and political boom. And, and Isaiah I'm sorry, Amos is showing them the rot at the center of their cultural character. And so when he says, "They hate him, who reproves in the gate." Back in those days, they didn't have courts of law, they had the elders sitting at the city gates. So every town had elders that would sit at the gates of the city and any trial, any lawsuit would take place in front of the village elders. But what had happened in Israelite culture is they hated anyone who was courageous enough to stand up against injustice, anybody who was courageous enough to call the guilty guilty. That's what this first sentence is about. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor, and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions, and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, who turn aside the needy needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. So what Amos is saying is, you leaders of Israel think that God approves of your life because you look up and down the streets of Samaria and you see beautiful houses full of of ivory-carved furniture and women walking around with gold and silver jewelry hanging from their ears and draped around their necks and, and men wearing the latest fashion. And you think, oh, look at us. We're doing so well. Obviously, God approves of us. And he says, don't you understand, you wealthy folks are doing great, but the common man is suffering because you're exploiting the poor to get your wealth. You think you're righteous because you have the law of Moses and other nations follow these other laws, but you follow law handed down from God. And yet, if you're so righteous, how come the guilty are going free? How come Israel is a place where you can literally get away with murder, with rape, with robbery, If you're so righteous, why is it that your leaders lack integrity, that they'll take bribes and favor the person who can pay them off to a greater extent? You thought that started in modern politics. It goes back 2,800 years or more. And when he says that the wise will keep silent, what he's saying is things are so bad in Israel now That even the men and women in your country who can look around and see we're headed in the wrong direction won't speak up because they're afraid to, because they know that no one wants to hear the truth. Wise people are silenced while fools are given a mouthpiece. Does that sound like today to you? Absolutely. Hello, Facebook. Hello, Twitter. What happens when you let an idol rule in your heart? It warps your character. It's what happened to Israel. It warps your sense of right and wrong. The Israelites worshiped gods who who stood for power, prosperity, and pleasure. Therefore, that's what the Israelites cared about. They didn't care about righteousness and justice anymore. So here's, here's the main point I want to make to you. We become what we worship. Whatever it is we give our hearts to, that's what we start to resemble. If I, if my wealth becomes my identity, my strength, my hope, then I'll become a person who will do whatever I have to do to gain more. If that means cheating somebody who's been a lifelong friend, if that means uh, compromising ethical standards, cheating on my taxes, if that means stealing, if that means suing someone because they got ahead of me in a business deal. I'll do all those things and I'll destroy those relationships and I'll become a bitter, driven, unloving human being. If, if my true God is approval, if I long for the applause of human beings, if I need for you to like me, then all my relationships will be automatically shallow because I will lack the courage to tell you the truth when you need to hear it. I won't be a true friend to you. I'll tell you what you want to hear because I can't possibly take the risk that you might get angry with me because my approval is my true God. If my politics becomes my true God, then half the country is my enemy. I'm not going to love those people over there because they represent everything I don't believe in. I am against them. Why would I love them? By the way, hasn't the last 12 months in our country shown us That political idolatry has taken root in both the political left and the political right? I'm not saying everybody who's politically active is an idolater. I'm saying there is a fringe on the left, and we see that in the in the idea that because I don't like the way society is, I'm going to start burning down cities. That's political idolatry. We see it on this fringe group in the political right who storm the capital of this country on January 6th. And some of them carrying Christian flags and playing Christian music and actually leading a prayer on the floor of the Senate. I don't want to be in their shoes on judgment day. That is a blasphemy against the Lord our God. You see, this is what happens when politics becomes your God. You're willing to do things that are absolutely wrong, hateful, violent, because your true God has told you it's necessary. And so you ignore Jesus Christ. In fact, you tell yourself you're serving him which is the deepest lie. If family becomes my God, as much as God wants me to love my wife and my children, but if my identity is bound up in seeing my children succeed, in having my needs met by my wife and having someday grandchildren who are clustered around me and I'm that, I'm that happy granddad sitting on the rocking chair with, with babies in my lap, if that's all my life is about, then I won't love my neighbor because I won't have time. And here's my, here's my friend or my coworker who's struggling with alcoholism or here's my neighbor uh, who's, ha- who's in a damaged marriage and I'm not gonna bring them into my house because I don't want my kids to see someone whose life is messed up instead of having the attitude I should have, which is my kids need to see their dad investing in other people in the name of Jesus. And when somebody wants to be my friend, I'm not going to go to lunch with him. I'm not going to go play golf with him. I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit down with him because after all, Susie's got violin and, and, and Bobby's got soccer practice. And then after that, it's, it's softball season and then it's frisbee golf. I don't know. And someday, someday I'm literally sitting there. Well, you know, maybe once the grandkids are grown, you see how we become what we worship. And I have to tell you, the ultimate end of all idolatry is heartbreak. The ultimate end of idolatry is despair. Israel trusted in foreign gods. And when Assyria attacked, when their world fell apart, those gods were nowhere to be found. And that's why there are no northern Israelites anymore. If you and I worship and serve God alone, we will experience sorrow. That's part of life, but we won't experience despair. Do you know the difference? Here's sorrow. Sorrow is if my wife dies before I do, I'm praying that she outlives me, but if she dies before I do, I'm gonna experience deep and real sorrow. If one of my two children ever gets to the point where they don't talk to me anymore, that's gonna hurt. If this church ever decides they don't want me to be their pastor anymore, that's gonna be hard because I love being pastor here. If if one day I get to where I can't walk or I, I can't uh, do things that I enjoy doing, that's gonna be hard. I'm gonna experience sorrow through all of those things but I'll still have hope, I'll still have joy, I'll still know who I am, I'll still have a reason to go on living, and I hope and pray that if and when any of those things happen, that through that, I'll glorify God, because people will say, look, Jeff has strength that I wish I had. That's sorrow, that's godly sorrow. But despair is when you lose your wife and you don't want to go on living. Despair is when one of your kids moves away and you're devastated. Despair is when you get laid off or fired and you don't know who you are anymore. Despair is when you put your trust in anything other than Jesus Christ because anything other than Jesus Christ will fail you. Not only will those false gods warp your character, but they'll fail you in the end. So even if you're trying to tell yourself, yes, I'm willing, I'm willing to disobey God because I need this God. I need this thing in my life. I can't afford to put Jesus first. It will fail you in the end. And I'm saying this because I love you. So you might say, okay, so what you want from me, Jeff, is to just get more religious, right? Go to church more often, open the Bible more often, tithe more often. Hey, I'm all for all those things, but that's not what I'm saying. That's what Israel said. Israel's gut level response was, oh yeah, well, we'll start going more often down to Houston, i.e. Jerusalem. We'll make that trip a little more often and then God will be satisfied. But look what comes next in Amos's prophecy. Verse 18, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Now quick time out. what is the day of the Lord? In that prophetic period between the exile and the time Jesus came along, the Israelites liked to talk about this idea of this day of the Lord, which is what they called this future time when God would visit earth personally. And when God showed up, the day of the Lord began and everything would be set right. The the evil would be punished. Israel would be vindicated. And so it was very popular during this time for the Israelites to say, "I, I can't wait for the day of the Lord. Amos says, you're a fool if you want the day of the Lord to come. Listen to what he says. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or he went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is it not the day of the Lord, darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? See, just like the Israelites, we have this tendency as Christians, as American evangelical Christians to see ourselves as the good guys. And we like to think, man, if, if Jesus came and visited American churches one after the other, Sunday after Sunday, he would just... He would talk to us the way Jesus talks to the church in Philadelphia in Revelation 3. Have you ever read that little letter that Jesus dictates through John to the church in Philadelphia? He would say to us, oh, you're doing such a good job. You're my good and faithful servants. You're the minority in this in this awful pagan world and all those evil people out there. You're, you're representing me so well. You're standing for the truth and, and just hold on to what you have. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do great things we like to say that's what he'd say to us. But I wonder. I wonder if it's more likely he would say to us what he said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Good for you. You you believe in the right God. Yeah, you're you're obeying a lot of commands. But woe to you. Because I, I put you here to draw people to salvation and you're pushing people away. I brought you here to bring people into my family. And instead you're labeling them enemies and pushing them further away from the gospel. Look at verse 21. I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Please understand at this point, God is speaking through Isaiah uh, through Amos. So the I in this verse is God. God, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You know, sometimes I wonder, how did Amos get out of, out of Israel alive? Because here's this hick from the south. And that's literally the way the Israelites looked at the, at the citizens of Judah. He comes strolling into this beautiful and well-heeled city and he starts just dropping bombs on them. Chapter 4, read it sometime. It's, it's sort of comical. He literally calls the wealthy women of Israel the cows of Bashan. You don't even have to know where Bashan is to know what an insult that was. And if that's not bad enough, Here in chapter 5, he tells them, God doesn't even want your worship. You think you're you're doing so well when you go down to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover? When you sit in your synagogues and you sing the psalms? When you offer your burnt offerings? God is disgusted by that. It's like a, a man who gives his wife a diamond ring to make up for the fact that he's got a mistress stashed in an apartment across town. Now, any woman will tell you that if She's married to a man who truly loves her. That any gift, it doesn't have to be a diamond, although that doesn't hurt. It can be something as simple as some flowers you picked out of the ditch on your way home. Any gift is appreciated. But if it's not true, if you don't really love her, that gift is disgusting, no matter how much it costs. Amos is saying that's what God thinks whenever you worship him which ought to make you and me tremble and ask ourselves the question, is that how God feels when I show up on Sundays and sing my songs and give my offering and pray my prayers and feel like I've just checked off a box and I'm a little more righteous because I did my duty? Is God up there saying, I don't want that? Yes, that's exactly what he's saying if your true God is something else. And you might say, well, then what do we do? Verse 24 is probably the most famous verse in all the book of Amos because of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. He says, till justice flows like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. A lot of people don't realize that's straight out of the scriptures. A lot of people don't realize what justice and righteousness refer to either. We think of justice we hear that term, and we think of the criminal justice system. That's how we use it today. We think of criminals being uh, accused and tried and found guilty. But in, in the Old Testament, the word justice usually almost always referred to something very different. It referred to fairness. It referred to leveling the playing field. Not, not socialism so that everybody gets the same, but equality of opportunity so that no one is born behind the eight ball. It means standing up for those who have less. Here's an example. There are so many scriptures I could give, but Psalm 82, three, give justice to the weak and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. And then righteousness, we hear that term and we think of morality. We think of uh, going to church and, and obeying the commands in the Bible and, and, and not sleeping around and not getting drunk and, and, and being a good person. And yes, that's part of it. But often righteousness means the same thing as justice. It means, it means looking out for those who are needy and those who are vulnerable. Proverbs 29, seven says, a righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. See, the Pharisees were good at going to church. They were good at following the rules. They just weren't compassionate. You're not righteous if you don't love others. Sad to say, I saw recently a person, a Christian woman posted on social media that she'd been she'd been recently posting scriptures from the Bible about righteousness and justice. She just wasn't including the scripture references. So she would post Psalm 82.3, but she wouldn't say Psalm 82.3. She would just post it as a quote. And then other, many other scriptures that talk about loving the poor, loving the immigrant, loving the needy, taking care of those who have less. And, and that's kind of sneaky. It's kind of like entrapment, right? because people don't know that you're quoting scripture. And what happened was some of her Christian friends said to her, what are you becoming, a Marxist? And she said, no, I'm quoting the Bible. See, Karl Marx did not come up with the idea of loving poor people. Jesus did. Vladimir Lenin didn't come up with the idea that we should care for those who have less. That is a a profoundly Christian biblical sentiment. And when Jesus stands on the Sermon on the Mount and says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied, what he's saying is, I am here to answer the prayer of Amos 5.24. I am here to be the one who makes justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You follow me, you let my spirit lead, you make me your one true God and you're gonna be somebody who loves others. And when a church does that, this church transforms the community. That's what God's talking about. And you might say, okay, so Jeff, what you're talking about is I just need to dedicate myself to taking care of poor people, right? That's, that's what God's looking for? Well, not exactly. See, first of all, none of us is really that unselfish. We're good at doing little one-time things, going on a mission trip. Maybe our life group gets together and does a mission project, or, or maybe we get involved in some kind of charity group, and all that's fine. But in many ways, it just serves to make us feel better about ourselves. And even if you're part of that one, that 0.001% of people who's so self-disciplined, you can literally live like a medieval bunk and, and, and give away all your possessions and, and, and give them to the poor and, and, and have no time for yourself, just be constantly helping others. You know what happens then? You replace one false god for another. You replace the the false god of materialism or or work or family for the god of self-righteousness because over time you start to go, hey, look, there goes Jane and her brand new Mercedes. I used to have a Mercedes until I sold it and gave it to the poor. I I used to to be, be able to go out like John and play golf every Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, but now I'm spending that time helping people. You know, I wish everybody could be like me. The world would be a better place. The only answer is gospel repentance. The only answer is to come before God in total humility and say, Lord, I know I don't have to do a single thing for you to love me because Jesus already did it on the cross. You love me already. If I never do one single thing, you're going to bring me home and give me an inheritance I don't deserve. But if I want to live a life that is pleasing to you, a life that draws others to you. If I want to live the life you died to give me, Lord, I need to confess to you this idol in my heart. And then you get specific. Lord, I I want to love you more than anything else, but I have to admit, most of the time, I'm daydreaming about my work. Lord, I, I, I want to love you more than anything else, but the truth is, I feel like I can't be happy unless I attain this certain level of wealth. Lord, I want to love you and through you to love my neighbors, but I, I just can't stand people who think differently than me about politics. You confess those idols before him and say, change me, God. Make me the person who truly puts you first. And I just need to share this story with you. I've been eager to share this story with you since it happened this past Tuesday. Total God thing, I love it. Um, so Tuesday morning, a man called our church from out of town said he had a brother-in-law who lives here in our area and asked if I would go visit him. He said his brother-in-law was 89 years old, not in good health. Could I go visit? I checked the church database. We have no record of this man attending our church. And so I thought, okay, well, I better get ready. I don't know if this guy wants to see me or not. So when I get to the house, I find a man laying in a hospital bed in his living room, and I introduce myself. He's very glad to see me. I quickly figure out this guy wanted me to come. In fact, he was the one who initiated that phone call. And I find out the reason he wants me there is he's starting to feel a little better. He's hoping he'll recover, but he's not sure. After all, he's 89. He's just been through a major illness. He wants to make sure he's saved. He didn't grow up in church, never accepted Christ as a savior. He wants to know before he goes and stands before his creator that his soul is saved. And you talk about a perfect setup. I didn't even have to do anything. I asked him a couple of questions, made sure he understood what it meant to give your heart to Jesus Christ. I led him in a prayer. He prayed and asked Jesus to be his savior. And I told him, hey, if you get back on your feet and you come to First Baptist Church, we'd be thrilled to baptize you. But if not, I know I'm going to see you in heaven someday. And and y'all... God's bless me. I've got a life that I can't complain about. And so most days of my life are good. This was a really good day, right? I was driving home because that was the last thing I was going to do that day. And on the way home, I realized I needed to stop at a store and pick something up. And as I pulled into the parking lot, here's the best part. As I pulled into the parking lot, it suddenly hit me. It's like a little something reminded me. I wonder who that was, that I had just prayed two days earlier. In my time with the Lord, I had I had been convicted of the fact that I couldn't remember the last time I shared my faith with someone. And yeah, there's lockdowns and people are staying behind closed doors and I could use that as an excuse, but, but I knew it was me. I knew it was me and I prayed and I repented before God and I asked his forgiveness and I said, Lord, would you give me an opportunity, please, to share my faith with someone soon? You know, that whole time I'd been wondering, out of all the churches in Montgomery County and this whole area, why call our church? He'd never been here before. Why us? And I don't know. Maybe it's because I prayed that prayer and said, Lord, give me the opportunity. Maybe if I hadn't prayed that prayer, it would have been somebody else and I wouldn't have gotten that blessing. I say all that to say this. Every week when we get to the end of the message, I try to give you some challenge, some way to apply the word of God to your life. And usually it starts with getting alone before God in the quiet of your heart and just saying, God, take this truth that I've learned and change me with it. And I don't know how many of you do it, maybe 10%, 5%, 1%. I have no idea. I'm just telling you, when you come before God in humility and say, Lord, change me, he does it. So do that. Come before him in humility. Confess, this is my struggle with idolatry. If you don't know what your particular idol you struggle with is, ask him to reveal it to you because I guarantee you, all of us struggle with something. Place it on the altar before him and say, put that in its proper place, Lord. I want you to be my one and only God.